the man has cobalt steel eyes, which mirror the deep blue of the rushing waters far below. He leans over the bridge for the thousandth time, as if expecting to see something that he missed when he last stared a few seconds ago. Down there broils a swirling, rushing, watery chaos, oblivion waiting its time, waiting for him. The crowd are tense, afraid to move, wanting him to cancel this madness, yet also desperate to see him clamber over the rail and fly. The time has come at last. Checking the coiled cord one final time, he hauls himself onto the narrow rail. Arms outstretched, a portrait of balance and poise. He stands aloft, his cold eyes staring straight ahead. If his body is still, then his nervous system is somersaulting within him. He wrestles now with his brain, which screams its natural warnings about height and safety and death. And don't you know that human beings aren't supposed to fly? Now that he's on the rail, nothing stands between him and the abyss below. For a moment, he breaks his concentration and turns his head to the breathless crowd. They're transfixed. Smiling doesn't seem appropriate. It's too trivial. Their faces wear a more serious expression, grave even, sober tributes to the coming bravery. The critical point arrives, the millisecond where you command your legs to push you out into nothing. Perhaps he senses the rushing onslaught of a last second fear, and so as if to flee the paralysis, he throws himself out, swallow-like, into the air. He glides outward, and then, as the crowds exclaim, he plummets down towards the rocks and foam below. His stomach is thrown, the wind rushes through his hair, there's no time to take a breath. It seems like he will fall forever, but it's only two or three seconds before he feels the tension of the cord straining against his weight. Oh, let the calculations be correct. If so, he will just touch the rapids with his fingertips before bouncing back up again. He has beaten his fear. He has dived into the face of death. And the crowds far above cheer voices from another world. He has done it. He is the bungee jumper. What did it feel like, Lord Jesus? The day you peered over the parapet of heaven and prepared to take your own leap? Did you stare and recoil at the swirling madness below? You were to die from the peace of your father's house down into our chaos. You were to leave that place of rapture to enter our rebellion, to move from immortality to the tedium of time. In that last moment, did you look around you at the sea of stunned angel faces, bowed and paled at the sight of this most holy sacrifice? Were there any words of farewell as you stepped in a millisecond from being the richest to the poorest? No comforting cord held you in your dive earthward. It was the leap of no return except by Calvary Way. 
Down and down you came, the partner creator of all that is, becoming a flush-faced baby that would have cried with hunger and cold. The angels couldn't resist breaking into song. The magnificence of all demanded that the heavens be split open for a while. Shepherds and wise men were drawn to worship on the spot. You came, Jesus, and pitched your tent among us. Both judges and prophets couldn't do what you did. Who has travelled further from the drawing board of creation to a hay-strewn trough, from king's robe to swaddling clothes? Who has it all and throws it all away? But there is a truth even more difficult to grasp than this incarnation of yours, which is hard enough for us to comprehend. It's the reason for your voluntary dive that is the news that really staggers. For you stood on the handrail of heaven and free fell for us. You looked over and looked down and you saw your people and you jumped. A friend of mine wrote that meditation back in 2009 while we were at college together. I've kept it all these years because I find it so profound. She wrote it as a reflection on just one verse, the verse that we began our reading with today. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is one of the most important verses in the whole of the Bible. So let's briefly make sure we understand the words that make it up. Over the last two weeks, we've explored this incredible name for Jesus that is the Word. We have discovered from the opening verses of John's Gospel that this is a very high title indeed. The Word is the reason that the whole universe exists. Jesus is the one thing that gives meaning to all of life. The Word is eternal. Jesus has been, is, and always will be God. At no point was Jesus made. Rather, through him, all things that were made have been made. The word is divine. Jesus is divine, equal in every way with his Father. He is holy and majestic, mighty and sovereign over all. There is no higher title than the word. Yet this verse, John 1.14, states something incredible. The divine word, one with the Father in divinity, becomes one with us in humanity. And the next word we should take note of here is the word flesh. Jesus wrote, the word became flesh. And flesh here speaks of the human condition, just as we know it in all of its frailty and vulnerability. This week, Margaret and John were delighted to receive a new grandchild into their family. And what a joy it will be for them when they get to hold little Harrison in their arms for the first time. Yet as they do, they will instinctively recognise how fragile he is. They'll be careful to prop his head up. They will hold on with the tightest grip. They will run at the beck and call of every noise that he makes. Harrison will smile and gurgle and bring delight to the family. 
but he'll also cry when he feels cold and irritated, hungry or afraid. This will be his flesh speaking. At the first Christmas, Jesus, the eternal word of God, became a fleshy human being. He made our tiring, aching, vulnerable bodies his own form of being. The third word in this verse to take note of is the word dwelling. This is the word that begins to explain why Jesus would make this astonishing leap. He came to dwell with us. And the Greek word that's used here is actually the word tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. John is making a deliberate allusion to the Old Testament. Do you remember when God's people were wandering through the wilderness after they'd escaped Egypt in the Exodus? God came alongside them as their personal guide and protector. He took up residence at the heart of their camp in a humble tent, the tabernacle. And John says Jesus has done the same. Jesus has taken up residence alongside his people. In a human body, he has pitched his tent among us. And from the centre of us, he will guide and protect us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We now know what the words mean. But if we're honest, we still struggle to take that sentence in. And John knew that this would be the case. So in the next four verses, he provides a short commentary on them. He uses three more words to try and describe the enormity of the incarnation. He continues. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The three words I'd like us to think about for a moment are glory, grace and truth. In the Old Testament, it was said that the glory of the Lord hovered over the tabernacle. And this glory manifests itself in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And so the people in the camp were left in no doubt that God was truly present among them. In the Christmas story, the glory of the Lord is felt as the angels split the skies with their singing, as the light of a great star beams down, as wise men bow and offer precious gifts. We know again that God is truly present. And of course, as the baby grows up, the full glory of God is seen in the person of Jesus. He had the power to do incredible miracles. He stilled the furious storm, fed the 5,000, healed the sick, raised the dead. Even in his death, the glory of God was powerfully made known. As Jesus took his final breath, the sky went dark. The curtain in the temple was torn in two and the earth shook. Jesus was fully human, but he was also gloriously God. 
He enabled the glory of God to be seen by the likes of you and me. The story of Christmas, the the story of incarnation is truly glorious. It is a divine act imagined only in the mind of God, performed only through the power of God, willed solely through the heart of God. As John wrote, he believed that we should bow before this glory. And as John the Baptist testified about Jesus in verse 15, he made it clear that this glory was so great, it far surpassed even his extraordinary ministry. The coming of Jesus is a moment of glory. The next word that John uses to describe the incarnation is grace. Jesus came to bring God's grace, God's undeserved favour. He came to bring us the forgiveness and life that we simply do not deserve. In verses 16 and 17, it says this. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the giving of the law to Moses was seen as an act of grace. The law was a blessing to the people. It showed them how to live well. But there was a problem. The law was good, but no human being could keep it all. And in this way, the law demonstrated all of our need for a saviour. But of course, the law itself didn't provide this. The law pointed out the problem of human sin and how it affects us all. And it pointed us in the right direction of where to get the help from that we need, i.e. from God. But the law did not get us there on its own. And that is why John can describe the coming of Jesus as an act of grace even greater than the one given to Moses. The baby Jesus would grow up to fulfill all the law. In his life, he set us the perfect example to follow. And then through his death... He offered the perfect sacrifice that was required to cleanse us from our sin. That was required to take the punishment that our sins deserved. Only God could live a perfect life. And that's why he came as a human being. And then after his death and his resurrection, Jesus then set about helping us to keep God's law. He placed his spirit into our hearts to help us live the lives that God truly wants for us. In essence, the gospel is quite simple. We were all sinners. Jesus came to forgive us and to make us good. The law couldn't do any of that. We can't do any of that. Only the power of the word can do that. It is amazing grace. After glory and grace, the final word that John draws upon to help us understand the incarnation of Jesus is truth. Jesus teaches the truth. He reveals the truth. He is the truth. And foremost in John's mind here, as he writes these words, is the concept of revelation. Jesus reveals, he shows us the truth 
of what God is like. In verse 18, John writes, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made God known. You see, as the Son of God, Jesus has the unique authority to make his Father known. By definition, there can be no rivals to this. No one else with that same level of knowledge and information about him. It would be a bit like going to ask someone else in this room what my father is like rather than asking me. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God would do in any given situation, look at Jesus. If you want to become a better person, set out to follow Jesus. Because he alone is the truth. Truth is not just what one person or other deems to be right for them. If that was the case, there'd be many different truths, some of them contradicting each other. The real truth is divine. And what is divine is by definition right. The coming of Jesus silences all the fraudsters in our world. The coming of Jesus exposes all those people who set themselves up as gods to be liars. Because only Jesus is the truth. Only Jesus leads to God. Only Jesus should be followed and worshipped. Our reading today began with an incredible verse, one of the most important in the whole of Scripture. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's a verse that blows our minds. It it takes our breath away. And we've tried three different ways to draw out its meaning. We've explored the creative metaphor of a bungee jumper. We've analysed the individual words And we've followed John's commentary, reflecting on the key themes of glory, grace and truth. All that leaves is for us to get really practical. How should we respond to this wonderful message? Well, first of all, this Christmas time, amongst all the turkey and tinsel and trappings, we must make space for worship. We must bow before the glory of of this baby and praise him as he's due. I discovered this week that in Ukraine, on Christmas Day, people greet each other with the words, Christ is born. And if someone comes up to you and says that, you immediately have to reply back with, glorify him. That is exactly what we should be doing. Secondly, we should spend time in prayer. Jesus came to forgive us for our sin so we can confess it to him, confident that in his grace he will take it away. But also if we're struggling, we can pray. We're not praying to an unfeeling statue, but to a God who in Jesus Christ is fully human, who knows our weaknesses, knows our pain. Many of us at this time are praying for Sarah. Sarah's in hospital at the moment, struggling to breathe. Jesus struggled to breathe on the cross. Many of us at this time are praying for Jim. Jim is at home, nearing his final moment. Jesus knew what it was for death to approach. 
What a comfort it is to pray to a God that truly understands. And finally, amid the busyness of Christmas, we should make time again to study this story. Indeed, through the whole of the year, we need to make time to to read and, and listen to the words of Jesus because we need God's truth in our lives. It is the truth that sets us free. It is the truth that we can hold on to in the doubts and trials of life. Today, we've reflected on a wonder. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. May the glory, grace and truth of those words enter our hearts this Christmas time and never leave us.